Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. How much do you think that when you do this, you can actually enhance or improve intuition? I think you can. I think it, an important element of it is, I believe, writing down you know, what you're concluding. I don't care if it's digital or, or physical, or I, I use my other notebook just to you know, write. It's nothing like writing down an assumption or speaking it, by the way. That's, that's powerful, too. It's just get it out of your head and make it real. And, you know, writing it down is particularly useful because you're like, hey, you look at it and you're like, that's different than what I thought. That's different than my instinct, my first instinct, now that I'm writing it down, now that I'm saying it out loud. And it also, that act creates a little bit of memory that checks your brain, you know, logs it, right? Because you've said it or you've written it. You've logged that assumption, that thought process, that conclusion, that idea, whatever it might be. Now it's available to be tested against reality, right? And reality is the ultimate arbiter. Mm -hmm. Even something like a instinctive conclusion, like the tool doesn't matter. Okay, well, that I, I can write that down. Now, how can I go test that against reality and be more aware of different things that happen that I can sort of test against that conclusion? So just whether it's a thoughtful experiment or just being aware because I've said it or written it down, like, oh, oh, there's another interesting experience. Mm. There's another interesting experience. There's another interesting experience that bounces against that. That becomes the feedback loop for your intuition. And I think and, you, begin to see, you begin to see through. patterns too over time, right? And that's a big part of that, what helps you to hone in your intuition because you do see patterns across different things. And after a while, there's just certain things that just kind of, you see there's, there's a commonality. Yeah. And pattern thinking, I think, is particularly important. I believe that's one of my strengths as a, as a human being. Uh, I'm a pattern thinker. Individual micro moments like, okay, well, that's, that is what it is. I may not be as good at those types of details, but seeing, understanding, extracting patterns, that's what I've always found is one of my core talents, if you will. And that's, that's harder to teach, but that's in a lot of ways, that's what intuition is doing, mm -hmm. is seeing the patterns and, you know, extrapolating them, uh, seeing under what conditions they, you know, with a little life experience stress testing, how do they hold up against, you know, against, uh, against life? And that's one of my, you know, I'll say another one of my backgrounds is just how many different companies I've worked with gives me lots and lots of data and experiences to extract those patterns from and to stress test them against. And so, that certainly helped me from that standpoint. It's also why, you know, if you want to be a better golfer, you go to the practice range, not another round of golf, because it's how you get more iterations to develop. Oh, I'm, I'm coming out of, I'm not a golfer. So I'll, I'll sound stupid say talking about a golf analogy, but <laughs> I'm coming out of my backswing too aggressively. And that's causing me to slice or hook or whatever it's, that's mm. supposed to do. Mm. Well, you can have lots more feedback loops for doing that on practice range than on the, on the golf course. And, but you're still stress testing your intuition against reality, which is, again, the arbiter of truth. 
you talk about delighting. What does it mean to delight a customer versus satisfying a customer? In great service, you have to do what you don't have to do. That's what it means. It means doing more than you have to do. It means proactively do, taking responsibility for the shared moment, the, the shared now. It is taking responsibility for that moment and doing more than you have to. It's not just exceeding the guest's expectations, exceeding your own. And every time you exceed your own expectations, you broaden the horizon of what is available and achievable to yourself. And this is the thing that may sound selfish, but what I like to drive home, it is impossible to delight a guest and not get stronger. I really want people to understand that whether we can see it in our in our vision at that moment or not, every time we exceed anyone's expectations, we broaden the horizon of what we're willing and able to be. Bam. And it is simultaneous. It is simultaneous. It is whether you can see it or not. In fact, usually you cannot, which is why I tell people to think of their service moments like one frame in a movie, one frame in a cartoon or an animated feature which I must, I, people spend hours and thousands of dollars on one frame and it's beautiful, but it doesn't tell you a story and it doesn't engage you in a narrative. You have to see 24 of those beautiful pictures past your eye a second for you to actually see the life that's being created. Mm-hmm. And the same is true with our service moments, man. We are right on the moment. <laughs> so it's hard to get perspective. You got to step back and you got to look at those service moments, 24 frames a second, and then step back. And when you see that, you see the story you're creating. How do you train people to do that? Well, first of all, you tell the truth. <laughs> and when somebody says, what's in it for me? I, I, this is what I tell smaller companies that uh, I've had the pleasure of um, you know, doing work for and and doing some consulting work for. When somebody asks the question, what's in it for me? Be prepared to answer it. That's one of the things. To to step up to the challenge of saying, this is what's in it for you. We can articulate what's in it for our guests, clients, and patients. That's going to be easy. But to articulate what is at stake for them at each and every moment. And the first day at the Walt Disney World Resort, you come in, and you'd walk in you'd walk in the building. And I and, okay, so I'm gonna tell you something. So when people would make fun of the Disney University, which is where the training is held, sometimes they would call it a pixie dust factory, or they'd say, Oh, you know what? That's the brainwashing facility. And the reason they would say that is because it is a little bit of a brainwashing facility, in that every sense is appealed to from the moment you walk up and you touch a doorknob which is the doorknob that you recognize from Alice in Wonderland. From that moment, from the first touch, you walk in and all around the building, you're going to see costumes, artifacts, old ride vehicles that start conjuring up memories. You start conjuring up your memory, your emotional connection, so that you can start to understand what is at stake for the guests because of what these things meant to you. It is a shamelessly emotional affair. And we would tell the story of, of Walt. And this is a great way to talk about how, how language and story ground every transaction to this day. Mm-hmm. 
One of the stories I would tell, and I used to um, train the instructors, the story that I insisted that we tell is the story about how Walt Disney is 65, he buys 45 square miles of Florida, and then promptly discovers he has a tumor the size of a walnut in one of his lungs. So he finds himself at the hospital, which is across mm-hmm. the street from his studio in Burbank. Mm-hmm. They remove one lung. His brother, who always handled the money behind the scenes, Roy, goes to see his brother in the hospital post-operation. And Walt is lying in the bed, and he's looking up at the ceiling, you know, intently. And the ceiling was these series of squares with, with holes. And Walt's looking up at these ceiling tiles, and he, and he motions his brother to come over. And hoarsely, he says, okay, you have to listen to me. We need to do this differently than we did in California. He's pointing to the ceiling. He goes, I want to put a lake in front of the Magic Kingdom that will act as an opening curtain so everybody gets the same opening shot of our show. And look, and, and he's pointing to the ceiling, and he's pointing to the ceiling, and he's showing his brother that he has mapped out all 45 square miles of that Florida in these ceiling tiles. Mm. So Roy leaves the hospital and he calls Walt Disney's wife, Lillian. And he goes, you know what? This old buzzard ain't going to die. If for meanness alone, he's going to drag us all to this godforsaken swamp in Florida to build this thing called Epcot. I don't get it, but he's going to be fine. And that night he died. Walt Disney died. So how are you doing this with watches, uh, smart watches? So, you know, we started, you know, I kind of mentioned when I was in grad school, we were actually looking at hormone levels and we were doing it with blood draws and we actually identified, we were one of the first labs that identified that when people have an experience that moves them to a point that is meaningful and significant, they actually release two chemicals in the brain. One is dopamine and dopamine is that important element for attention. The second is oxytocin. And oxytocin is that hormone that actually keeps us focused on the scenario. It's that hormone that's released when we're getting value from the experience. When we identified this, we found actually that when somebody's having that meaningful moment, those two hormones release. But then also, if people release those hormones, they're more likely to actually donate some of their hard-earned money toward an organization that produced that video. So this was our kind of seminal study, and we got a lot of press because we found these hormones and found basically that with the release of those, we can predict whether or not someone is likely to do something. Fast forward about uh, you know three or four years, we got a little bit of attention from the U.S. government who said, wow, you were able to find this kind of physiologic marker that indicates that people are likely to make some decision. We want to be able to do this at scale, where if we drop a flyer on a battlefield, we want to be able to understand, are people actually going to put the, you know, the, their weapons down? How do we know without needing to poke people with needles? Obviously, that's not uh, something that's scalable. So we and other labs were challenged to find a way to understand that this hormone release was happening, but to do so again in a way that's scalable. And they said there are two criteria. Number one, we need to be able to do this at scale. But number two, we also need to make sure that you're vetted by third-party labs. So this is very academic. You know, when academics do research, it's not enough to just say, hey, I found this thing. You also aim to have that evaluated by your peers, to be peer-reviewed, to be published. So we went to work and we actually put about 12 years of research into this challenge. And it was kind of a backwards challenge because we knew that oxytocin release told us 
people are likely to engage in some future behavior. Then we had to actually find out what are other physiologic signals that are strong predictors that the brain has released this hormone, right? So we started testing every technology we could get our hands on. We looked at the EEGs. We looked at breath analysis. We looked at lasers to see if we could understand this release from lasers. And after 12 years of research, what we found is that the number one predictor of oxytocin release and of this future behavior, these future actions, which from a neuroeconomics lab, that's what we cared most about. The one predictor was actually variation in your cardiac rhythm. So it's about the way in which our heart rate changes over time. So that for us became the kind of pivotal moment where we said, hey, okay, we don't need to stick people with needles anymore. We can actually look at the way that the heart rate is changing subtly. And it actually turns out that's not super surprising because you actually have the largest concentration of oxytocin receptors in your vagus nerve, which innervates the heart. So when we were uh, you know, working with the US government, we were able to identify this. At the time though, Darshan, we were doing hand calculations, extracting the meaningful information from the heart rate signals. It was, you know, tons of work, tons of kind of manual labor. I always joke about my grad school time being blood, sweat, and tears because I was the expert in skin conductance, which ended up not really being a meaningful additional predictive element. But what we found again was, was that cardiac rhythm really mattered. And we found that at first we were measuring it with medical grade uh, technology. And then with some research, we found we can actually use lightweight fitness sensors to track this just as accurately. And now fast forward to where we're at, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were using primarily fitness sensors and we realized there's a big need for researchers to be able to continue doing research. They needed an agile solution where they could meet people at home and people didn't want us sending sensors into their home. So we went to work and basically found that we could tap into smartwatches. We have algorithms specific for those. And now we can actually tap into devices that people already own. Again, a smartwatch like an Apple Watch or a Google Watch that consumers are already wearing, which is a benefit because that means when we're measuring their reactions, those second by second changes in their cardiac rhythm, we're doing so passively where they can actually naturally have the experience. And when you're doing cultural strategy, uh, the insights or the pursuit of insights a little bit different? Is the depth any different or would it be the same as other insights? I'm just curious, is there a difference when you're actually dealing with cultural strategy? It is a lot deeper. Can you give me an example? Yeah. So in, in addition to the why that you might ask, I'm also asking, well, what's happening in the world <laughs> that is ultimately impacting this respondent or this group of respondents choices. So I have to look at the individual, but I also have to look at the world around them. And where the history means, component comes into play as well that we talked about earlier. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I have to know the past, but I also have to know what's happening today. Right. And I also have to know what's happening in smaller, more marginalized sectors of, of the culture, things that aren't maybe on the mainstream lens just yet. So that I can say, oh, these responders are kind of doing these other things. I've seen this happen, you know, in small sparks here and there, but it hasn't become mainstream yet. And this could be where they're pulling from. So I it basically, it makes my data set of why a bit wider, mm-hmm. almost global and universal so that I can, I use it more to substantiate the reasons as to why they're doing things. And it's usually to illustrate the things that they can't articulate, right? 
my great, my favorite example is always going to be Devil Wears Prada. I don't know if you've seen that before, but there's a scene where the woman laughs because they're making a big fuss about a green belt that there are a, a turquoise belt that they're trying to choose for fashion moment. And basically Miranda tells her that all of her choices have already been decided for her, whether she knows it or not. And she goes down this line of different fall lines or different spring lines that have happened in different collections to basically make her choose whatever she was wearing, which is now at the bottom, you know, of a sales bin in somebody's discount store. And that's kind of what cultural insights is and the history that I look into. It's like, what are those invisible forces that are ultimately telling consumers what to do, how to live, how to exist and impacting their decision-making habits? To kind of probe for another example, obviously George Floyd's event was a very key turning point in many ways. It was a very tragic moment. The cultural strategies changed, do you think, much post that uh, whole you know, event that the world had to see and, and, and experience? And if so, how has it changed? That's a trickier topic. And that's mostly because race is involved. And that's a topic that is has 400 years of a one-sided type of history behind it. Mm-hmm. And that's a harder area to shift or change. So I think that there's well-meaning behind companies wishing to create strategies against that but it requires a lot of energy to kind of hold those strategies up. So I can't say that anything's changed because of that. I can say that energy around the idea has been, you know, a little bit more intense. Yeah. Yeah. It's heightened, but it doesn't mean that change has necessarily happened. But if you compare that. Change takes a long time and a lot more than just heightened energy. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But if you were to take something like the wellness movement, that's definitely something that has shifted the way we do everything. And it started, I think, it started way, way, way back when holistic wellness started coming on our radars, mm-hmm. when there was a desire for millennials to kind of separate themselves from the angst and anxiety that the 2008 recession had caused. And so there was this move for mindfulness, right? Like that's when uh, events and experiences became prioritized because we couldn't access those material things that were monikers of success or happiness or whatever you want to call that. So we made it intangible and that kind of moved us to this era of mindfulness and being present and have, wanting to be at peace within our own spirit, within ourselves. And it has exploded to this large wellness landscape that it seem, is seemingly limitless. It's not just about our physical bodies. It's about our emotional well-being. Mental health is a very key trend today and now. So it's probably going to continue to evolve over time. So when you get other people involved, what role do insights play in this? I mean, is that what you're seeking? Is you're, you're looking for insights from various people to help yeah. make a decision and yeah, because, a balance? Yeah, because if I'm in operations and I need a CRM to help me with uh, my, uh, I guess, my logistics, my inbound and outbound and processing, packing, I know my area of expertise, but there are things that I don't know that are in IT that are also in finance. You know, if this is going to cost us X amount, how does that uh, mesh up with our, our long-term projections? I don't keep up with that. 
Or if, you know, the way the contract is stated, you know, you pay 50% up front and then 20% later and then 30% later, well, finance down this track many a time say, no, this is not how we do this. Let's do it this way. Uh, it's been our experience that we could pay 20% first and then use the product and then pay as we go. So those are things that uh, finance may know and have expertise in that I don't. And the same thing with IT. You know, this is great, but they, they've had a lot of breaches here recently. We kept uh, we read an article and those are things I don't keep up with because it's not my realm. So they would help me in making a better decision as opposed to going with my gut. I could have chosen a company. It was really great. But then in the end, they've had breaches to the last uh, two over the last seven years. And it's uh, causes us big problems should there be a breach. So, yeah, you want to get everybody involved and not go with your gut. If everybody's guts put together, then you can make a better decision. I think what you're saying is basically have these conversations so you can get other perspectives and viewpoints. And also it also kind of contributes to your empathy to understand what's really going on with the key stakeholders. Yes. And so then I think you know, the more informed information you get and these insights from the various players, then that just makes sense. You're going to end up with better information that's going to give you a, a better decision which will ultimately lead to a better outcome. I mean, yes. that makes sense. It seems logical, but I think something we often lose track of, right? Because we have so many things going on and so much noise. But I think in its bare essence, what you're saying is have these conversations with key stakeholders. And along the way, you're going to end up making more informed, better decisions that right. will help you in your business uh, strategy. Yes. And, and what you said there was uh, really on point better decisions, more informed decisions. You don't know if you didn't make the best decision, but through this process, you reduce the risk of making a bad decision because the only way you know is you made a decision, then go back in time and then go with the other decision and fast forward and go back in time. But with this process, you reduce the risk of making a bad decision. And I'm wondering, do you think the times that we live in now, you know, post COVID, what kind of impact is that going to make on this on your process as well as decision-making, do you think? Moving so forward. the thing with this process uh, that I have, this framework, is it really forces you to do your homework. So there's a lot of uh, information out there. Uh, there's misinformation. There's uh, information that you can't get. There's information that is correct. But through this process, it forces you to go and do your research so that when you make a decision about you and your family, you have all the information that's available to make that best decision. You don't want to make a decision based on emotions. So this process that I'm talking about, it looks at the, again, the, and for your family, it might be best that you get the shot, for example, but for another family, it's like, no, this is not the best thing for us. So this framework looks at what's best for you, for your company, for your business. And post COVID, had we had this process, I guess, in, uh, I guess if countries would have used this process, they would have made a more informed decision because instead of going through and say, yeah, we got to do A, B, and C, they would have looked at the totality and say, you know, if we do this, here's what's going to happen to the, these people. Here's what's going to happen to this part of the sector. So if they were to use this process, say, yeah, we took everything in consideration. This is still the best route. Then that would be fine. But a lot of times uh, we make decisions based on emotions and it just ends up going down the wrong path. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. 
And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.